This is Jeremy Bassetti, and you're listening to Travel Writing World, a podcast featuring interviews with travel writers about their work and about the business and craft of travel writing. You can find the episode show notes, free travel writing resources, and much more at travelwritingworld.com. In her journey through Central Asia, Caroline Eden uses food as a platform from which to explore the history and culture of this underreported region, a land on the old Silk Road and at the crossroads of East and West. Caroline stops by the podcast to talk about the stands, their food, and her new book, Red Sands, now available in a beautiful hardback stuffed with reportage, photographs, and recipes. So now, here is Caroline Eden. Caroline, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. So in 2018, you published Black Sea. It's a book about food and your travels through the Black Sea region, so Edessa, Romania, and Turkey. But that was uh, well-received and and won many awards. And and now you're back with uh, what has been described as the second book in a trilogy. Uh, a new book called Red Sands, about your travels through Central Asia. So I was wondering if you could uh, just introduce us, tell us a little bit about what you have cooking here (laughs) uh, in in this new book. Um, Yeah, thank you. So um, it's been out, it's a a new book. It came out in November, um, both in the US and the UK. And um, it was really a way for me to try and see the region with new eyes. So I've been writing about Central Asia for just over a decade. Um, everything from travel articles to sort of more newsy radio reports, book reviews. Um, I love the region very much. My husband was based there for quite a long time as a foreign correspondent. So the two of us are very, very fond of this region. Um, But I wanted to go back and look at it really through food and see how that forges and shapes the landscape and reflects the history and to maybe use it as a test to see how it can open doors to other lives and other worlds that maybe I hadn't seen before. So really it was a way for me to see it anew um, and to try and record the changes I'd witnessed um, over these years of traveling to and from Central Asia, because while many things stay the same, there is definitely a march of modernization in the big cities. So I also wanted to capture some of that before more things changed. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking here about these stands, the Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, and, and curiously, not Turkmenistan, right? Right, yeah. Um, I pondered long and hard about this, and it felt wrong to me to leave Turkmenistan out. However, it's very difficult there to report freely And independently, you're technically supposed to have a guide if you leave the capital, Ashgabat. And while I've got some contacts there and I maybe could have pulled some strings, what I like to do is to take my time and sort of float about and just talk to people freely. And I was a bit concerned that um, Turkmenistan, which is really under a, a dictator, wouldn't allow me to do that. So I decided to leave it out. It wasn't an easy decision, but I, I felt it was was the best decision to make at this time. Mm-hmm. So you'd mentioned that uh, both you and your husband are fond of this of this region. I'm just curious, uh, what is so fascinating about it, or what is so fascinating about the, this region's food? Um, uh, 
So there's there's two things really. Initially for me, um, I travelled a lot in, in the Indian subcontinent and um, I was drawn there mainly for, for the architecture. I mean, um, also to trace the Silk Road and the, and the history, but I was, I was fascinated by the mixture of Islam and the Soviet hangover, which exists. Um, and it's a curious mix and it produces very interesting cultural, um, I wouldn't say clashes because things, things don't clash, they're quite smooth. And, and the food for me, book-wise, was a way to try and highlight these differences and similarities. And I got quite frustrated because in many guidebooks, um, people talk about how challenging the food is. And if you're vegetarian, you know, you're going to have a nightmare and you're going to be hungry. And this wasn't really my experience. I don't eat very much meat and I'd never gone hungry um, in, in Central Asia. The markets are full of incredible produce, some of the best fruit in the world, amazing vegetables, herbs, cheeses, breads, very good meat, actually. Um, and so Samarkan, my very first book, which was published back in 2016, was a sort of antidote to that. It was a way for me to try and write that wrong and to say that this isn't really true. Yes, tourism's not established. So some of the tourism sort of orientated cafes and restaurants are not so great. But actually, mm -hmm. if you stay in people's homes, the cooking's really interesting because people draw on the entire former Soviet Union, um, which is very varied and um, complex. I'm glad you mentioned the uh, Silk Road connection because it was something I wanted to ask you about. You know, this region is a crossroads, right? The Silk Road, of course, went through the area, Samarkand, Tashkent. And in more modern times, Russia and um, China, the obvious influence of the Soviet Union, which you mentioned, and China, perhaps because of the Uyghur population uh, that are you know, moving into the region because of the persecution in China. Um, can we see this like strong cross fertilization, I guess, of in, in the cuisine? Um, to is it is it something tangible? Is it something that we can mark? Yes, I mean, if we take the Uyghurs in particular, um, they've been settled in China for a very long time, and um, there's a very large diaspora in Almaty in Kazakhstan. Many of the Uyghurs who live in Xinjiang are ethnically Kazakh. Hmm. some Kyrgyz, very few Uzbeks. Um, and Uyghur food is still very popular um, in Central Asia. So in Bishkek, for example, there's a great cafe called Cafe Pfizer. And it was opened by um, Kyrgyz Uyghur people a while ago, maybe 20 odd years ago. And it's excellent. And you go there and you have lagman. Uh, and this is sort of noodles with a meat broth, celery and red peppers, um, and meat and chopped chives on the top. Uh, it's very, very popular. So the food, the Uyghur food definitely um, exists in the pockets um, of the diaspora, which exist in Almaty in Kazakhstan and, and Bishkek um, in Kyrgyzstan. Um, in the book, I have an essay um, where I go to have um, an iftar feast during Ramadan with a Uyghur population in Almaty at a mosque. Um, and there I, I talk about the 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 current problems um, which are happening across the border in, in China, the cultural slash possibly genuine genocide of the, the Uyghur people, um, which continues to the world's horror. Um, so food, I think, I think people sometimes think it's quite a frivolous topic, but it isn't because you can, you can talk about anything through, through food, um, adventures in understanding the microscopic, the monumental, um, the universal in the particular, there's, there's, if you talk about food, there's always, um, 
interesting routes that it, that it takes you on. And, and the Uyghur story is, is just one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very pleased that now the media is picking up on this story, but it's not new. It's been happening for 20 odd years. Mm-hmm. Now that you mentioned that, I think I uh, you know, phrased my question incorrectly. I mentioned the Chinese influence and I, I guess conflated Chinese with Uyghur. But as you, as you note, many of the Uyghurs there are ethnically not Chinese. So mm-hmm. I, my no, own- they're Turkic. They uh, they speak Turkic language and they're, and they're Muslims. But you're right about the Chinese uh, influence. It's huge in Central Asia, um, and the Russian and Chinese um, sort of battle for power is is very interesting in itself. So China bankrolls a lot of the major um, infrastructure projects in Central Asia: tunnels, dams, um, very sort of basic, important infrastructure. Um, but it gets the countries into a lot of debt. And Tajikistan, for example, is a grindingly poor country, and it is extremely in debt to China. Um, conversely, Russia—you know—people always say to me, "What languages do you speak?" And I, I'm not a linguist. It's always very disappointing um, for me <laughs> and for whoever asks the question. But I do speak some Russian, and Russian is still the language you hear in Bishkek on the streets, in Almaty on the streets, in Tashkent on the streets. Uh, Russia still looms large, and you know, if there's sort of international football matches happening, the locals in Central Asia are backing Russia. So it's very interesting the Chinese uh, Russian sort of yeah battle for power and influence in in Central Asia. It's it's one of the reasons that Central Asia is so important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as you as you mentioned, the the Chinese coming in and building the roads and the infrastructure, and you know, indebting many of these nations. Um, it reminds me of the the role that the World Bank and the IMF played, um, and perhaps still plays uh, about development and the the processes of underdevelopment and development, uh, bankrolling these nations and exerting some sort of power over them because of the debt. It's really fascinating to see that, and I hear that China is doing that in. In, in Africa as well and other parts of the world. Oh, yeah. Yes, very much so. Yeah. I, I think Central Asia and, and certain countries in Africa have, de- have definitely um, crop up in news stories about um, countries which are very heavily in debt to China. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you wanted to reveal a different portrait of Central Asia. How has Central Asia been been represented? Um, do, do you, When you say that you wanted to reveal a different portrait of Central Asia, do you mean in terms of your approach to food and culture um, or in terms of a larger narrative of Central Asia as being kind of like this, you know, bleak space people fly over? Yeah, I think I think I mean that from various different ways. Um, mm. There's There are very good websites um, on Central Asia um, that are available, news websites such as Eurasianet. Um, which tell very original, interesting stories about the region. Um, so we have that. Uh, it's all quite serious, hard news, though. And then you have the sort of historical, um, slightly orientalist, great game, Silk Road stories, mm. um, many of which were written in the 20th um, century, mainly by male travel writers. Um, so you have that sort of like slightly orientalist gaze stuff coming through. And then you have the kind of wacky side of things, which are generally on travel blogs where people talk about, you know, the crazy dictators and the terrible food and the terrible roads and none of the ATMs work. And none mm. of this is, <laughs> I mean, the, the Eurasian net is a great site, but the other sort of stuff, the orientalist stuff and the kind of wacky Central Asia, most of us who work in the region a lot are a bit 
fed up with that because it's not really true. The capital cities are very vibrant and very interesting and they're doing quite a lot of cool cutting edge stuff. This doesn't tend to get reported on as much. Um, so I suppose my book is supposed to just be a, an honest um, story in, in, you know, telling the story of Central Asia, how I experience it, uh, hopefully with engagement and respect. And yeah, just sort of trying to catch the feel of the place in an honest way. And I feel that recipes and food is a really good way into introducing people who perhaps aren't so familiar with the region um, to, to bring them in and um, yeah, to show them the Central Asia that I've loved for, for so long. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's talk about the recipes and the book. This is the book, first of all. It's hard for me to convey this in audio, but the book is beautiful. It's you know loaded with beautiful, full color images. There's heft to this book, right? Um, and it's a travel book, um, but it doesn't read like a travel book per se because there are recipes and you know it, it's, there's a lot going on. And you know, I guess the question is like, how how do you see? this book and your previous books, do you see them as um, travel, journalism, food writing, um, I don't know, uh, cookbooks? How do you see your yeah, work? They're really hard to classify. Um, I, I mean, people always say, you know, are you a food writer or are you a travel writer? <laughs> or like, what are you? And I'm just like, well, I'm a writer. I, like any writer, I find um, what I write, what I find you know, is, is of interest. I suppose if if I had it my way, I would say that it's a travel log with recipes, but they're essays through the book. I mean, really, I'm I'm a journalist, so I quite like writing in you know two thousand word chunks. Um, so they're they're essays. Ideally, it's read from start to finish. There is a narrative arc of sorts going through it. So, and the recipes are there to sort of punctuate the text. Um, and I've always said that I see them like maps. They're connectors and another way of telling the story and they kind of help get people into the region. So, um, yeah, that's that's kind of how I see the recipes. Mm-hmm. Are, are the recipes um, kind of indicative of the culture of the region or are they more of kind of like waypoints on your journey while reporting yeah, no- and writing? It's a good way of putting it. They're definitely waypoints on my journey. And I always like to make this clear. I am not from the region. I am probably not best placed to be writing a kind of anthropological study, an authentic study of cuisine in Central Asia. That's not my job. Uh, My job is to write recipes um, which express the journey. So they have to have a reason for being there. Mm -hmm. Um, So, for example, for for your listeners who probably won't have the book, in the Tajikistan essay, which is at the end, uh, there's a region called the Fan Mountains, which is a wonderful region for trekking. And um, I'd been there and then I sort of travelled north up to Hujand, which is in the Fagana Valley. And I'd become um, accustomed in the Fan Mountains and in Hujand with these lemons, which Americans will know as Maya lemons, mm. those who know about food. <laughs> We can't get these in the UK. They're they're very smooth. The skin's sort of smooth like a plum. And inside, um, the le- the lemon is not fully sour. It's quite kind of quite sweet, almost like an orange or a tangerine. Um, Alice Waters, who was uh, the owner of Chez Panisse in, in, in Berkeley, uh, California, used her, that citrus fruit in um, a very famous lemon meringue pie she made. I subsequently found out. Well, Maya lemons come from China originally. Maya was the name of the guy who brought them from China to America. 
And <laughs> these lemons that I was eating in Tajikistan are a variety of the of the Maya lemon. And the Tajiks use them to sort of dash them through pilaf, rice, you know, rice dishes with beef, so savory dishes. They'll put little chunks of the lemon in. Um, and they sell them in all the markets and they put them in salads. And I'd never experienced anything like this before. Um, I've never eaten a salad with, you know, little triangles of lemon in because here they're so sharp and sour that just wouldn't work, but it worked there. So I have a recipe for seven lakes pilaf with beef and lemon. And it's the pilaf that I was served when I was trekking in the Fan Mountains. And I tell a little bit of a story about these lemons. So yeah, that's a, that's an example of how a recipe uh, can work to tell something of the region. And the essay before it goes into great detail about this walk that I did that was wonderful um, and the fabulous homestay that I stayed in. Just a quick note and we'll get right back to the episode. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcasting app or consider supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at travelwritingworld.com slash support. So imagine you just ate this wonderful dish with with the lemons. What what do you do? Do you go to the cook and say, "Hey, this recipe is great. I want to copy it down." Or how do, how does how do you approach that? It's a real it's a real mixture. I mean, it totally depends on the recipe. Uh, I know how to make a beef pilaf. Um, it's not rocket science. Um, so I don't think I spoke to the cook about that particular recipe. I just recreated it at home. Mm. Um, sometimes obviously there are certain ingredients which are quite hard to source at home. So you have to make things suitable for cooks in America, mainly in, in the UK where my readers tend to be. Um, but yeah, sometimes, um, I'll talk to the person in the restaurant or the guest house or the cafe which I've been in but more often than not I just come home and I recreate it myself so I have your I have your book in front of me and you know there it's loaded with a lot of interesting recipes which one is your favorite and and or which one should I try first oh that's a very difficult question um we've just had great fun on twitter doing the great central asian bake-off um so to promote the book a friend of mine who promotes tourism to Uzbekistan and I did this competition where people had to photograph, obviously we can't taste it, but photograph Central Asian um, bakes. And I don't think we did this one. We did a different one, but throughout Central Asia, Samsa is a quintessential thing that you eat. Um, It's basically a pastry turnover normally filled with lamb or pumpkin or potatoes And it's super easy to make and really, really delicious. Um, So a little twist on that, uh, one recipe that's that's in the book, Dushanbe is the capital of Tajikistan. And there they don't call it Samsa, they call it Sambusa. And much to my excitement, they have chickpea versions, which are vegetarian. And often in the springtime, they fill them with herbs, spinach, mint, um, that sort of thing. So um, I have a recipe in there for Dushanbe sambusa with chickpea, spinach, and mint. You really can't go wrong with this recipe. Okay. <laughs> Even if you never cook, um, it's lovely and flaky and buttery and very easy to make. So I would say as a starting point, this is probably a good thing because you will eat samsa or sambusa if you're in Central Asia. And this recipe tells you how to make it at home. I'll surprise my wife with that <laughs> yeah. dish. 
yeah, and they're very good with a with a nice pot of green tea, which cuts through the fat if you're having lamb ones traditionally. Um, but yeah, great thing to make for lunch mm. for the salad. So how how did you first get involved with uh, writing about food and and, and culture? Um, I was doing sort of straightforward travel articles for various publications. I've been writing mm -hmm. the odd piece for the Guardian, for example, for for years and. Um, I found that uh, probably a third of each article that I ever wrote, whether I was in Haiti or Bangladesh or Nepal or Australia or wherever else, was about markets or food. And it's like that with travel journalism. If you if you read a lot of travel journalism, uh, like I'm sure you do, you know, um, it's an easy way into a culture if mm -hmm. you don't understand anything. So if you're... Um, I mean, it's not so fashionable to do this kind of journalism anymore. But back then, you know, I would go to somewhere for three weeks and, you know, you go to the local market and you get a very good initial feel for a place. And that's all fine. But if you can really get into a region uh, like Central Asia, um, it's it's just a really, really good way of understanding somewhere. Um And I just find food gives me a sort of uh, structure to write about whatever I might find interesting in a country. It's, it's a nice, yeah, it's a structure, really, mm -hmm. I think. Does it help? That's why I enjoy Sorry, does it help with uh, contacts and, and reporting? Does it, food, uh, does that open doors for you? Does that make it easier to... Not to really, but I think we, we all eat three times a day. So you're always going to be in a cafe or a restaurant and... Central Asia isn't always the easiest place to travel in. It is quite tiring. It is quite hard sometimes and the roads are rough and, you know, it's a comfort on these long journeys. And that's something I really talk about in Red Sands. You know, you have to stop and you have to digest and food provides a rhythm. It's three times a day you sit down and you think about things and you meet people. And that lovely domestic detail often opens up sides of history or lives which maybe you'd missed when you were sort of like whipping through somewhere mm -hmm. uh so it's a comfort and it's good to think with it's a really good good way to to sit and digest what's happening mm -hmm. i read somewhere that this is the third book in your colors trilogy so black sea red sands what's next <laughs> Well, obviously, Jeremy, at the moment, it's extremely hard to plan anything. Uh -huh. So um, I can't divulge that. Uh, there will be a third in the Colour Trilogy, but goodness, at the moment, uh, as you know, it's just so hard right. to put plans and wheels in motion. Um, so I'm hoping autumn next year I can get on the road again. But the former Soviet Union is my area of interest, so I can probably say that much. We'll mm -hmm. be sticking to the Russian-speaking world. I've seen your publication list and it seems like you're putting out a book about every two years or so. And um, this pandemic might ruin your rhythm, but we uh, look forward to seeing something uh, new. Thank you. Can you read us a short passage from Red Sands? It would be my pleasure. So we were talking earlier on about what to do. And I said, what I think might be nice is to take your listeners to Kazakhstan and to the giant steppe lands of central Kazakhstan and to a city called Karaganda. So I'm just going to read, and it will sound odd at the start, but then the essay will start to make sense. It is I, seagull. I see the horizon. This is the earth. How beautiful it is. Everything goes well. 
And with these words, on the 16th of June, 1963, 26-year-old Valentina Tereshkova made history by becoming the first woman in space. Aboard Vostok 6, strapped to her ejection seat, Tereshkova blasted into space, her mission lasting two days and 22 hours. So secretive was her quest, the space race between Cold War rivals, the Soviet Union and the United States was on, that her mother, back home in the Soviet Union, only knew of her daughter's success when she saw the television news. Chaika, meaning seagull in Russian, was her codename. Tereshkova's photograph hangs above the reception desks of Hotel Chaika in Karaganda. Its main building shapes like the spread wings of a gull, its design brilliantly retro. In the portrait, she poses serenely under perfectly coiffed auburn hair, her black jacket shining with dozens of medals. Next to her, a framed portrait of Yuri Gagarin, the first human in space, in exactly the same pose, highly decorated with even more medals and with an even wider grin. Soviet heroes both. Men and women of the future. Unmissable at the front desk too is a diploma from... 1987, proudly framed alongside the space superstars. From the Federation of Cosmonauts of the USSR, it was awarded to the Hotel Chaika on the 25th anniversary of the first R&R stay of space travellers, acknowledging the hotel's role as part of the Soviet space programme. Quite fairly, the hotel continues to trade on its association with the cosmonauts. Dozens of cosmonauts came here to the city's first hotel, then simply called New Hotel, to sleep and rest after landing by parachute relatively close by. They'd gone up from Baikonur Cosmodrome in the south of the country, a spaceport set in 4,200 square miles of semi-desert, from where Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite, and Vostok 1, the first human spaceflight, were both launched. A little R&R before the universal fame that followed. These cosmonauts turned Karaganda into a space city of sorts. Streets are named after them, spaceship murals decorate the side of apartment blocks, and in the centre of Karaganda, a huge, shining, steel Yuri Gagarin statue is the centrepiece in a monumental Soviet-built square. In Hotel Chaika's restaurant, flavours and tastes a little changed since the time the cosmonauts were here. The menu lists forschmack, a pate of herring and apple, Russian Olivia salad, stuffed pancakes, chicken julienne with mushrooms and Georgian style chicken. To drink, there are three choices, tea, juice or vodka. As Yuri Gagarin was the first human in space, he ate the first meal in orbit too, thrilling in its blandness. Two servings of pureed meat and one of chocolate sauce, pastes he squeezed into his mouth from tubes. Project Gemini, during the 1960s, improved freeze-drying methods, making it possible shrimp cocktail, toast, chicken and vegetables with food coated with gelatin or oil to prevent crumbling. For space flights, Russians took fish such as sturgeon and cottage cheese like tuvarog. When China launched into orbit in 2003 for the first time, astronaut Yang Liwei brought herbal tonics and Chinese-made bite-sized chicken and rice coated in a thin edible film for ease of eating. The caretaker of the hotel, Galim, led me to the adjoining mansion, which once stood alone as the original hotel. We crunched down a path over pine cones to the place where the heroes of the Soviet Union once slept. 
Plaques commemorating the spacemen and women covered the exterior wall, while inside, by white ruffled neck curtains, were dozens of mounted portraits, more museum than hotel. Cosmonaut Vladimir Shatilov, twice hero of the Soviet Union, recipient of three orders of Lenin, slept here on the 17th of January 1969. At 7am that morning, when it was minus 30 outside and the steppe was blanketed with 80 centimetres of snow, Shatilov touched down Soyuz 4, a few dozen miles southwest of Karaganda. Five minutes after landing, he and his crew were on the recovery helicopter then at Hotel Chaika, they underwent a medical examination before giving a press conference. I didn't stay at the Chaika, overnighting instead at the Hotel Cosmonaut, a 10-minute drive away. Little of the original 1972 construction remains, but this hotel too was built specifically for the return of cosmonauts. I think the listeners will will, will notice that um, th- this book isn't just about food. Uh, there's um, yes. interesting stories, some fun and, and quirky like this one, and, and some more serious, uh, like the stories when you you know meet the Uyghurs uh, later in the book, um, and, and they'll see that you know you're really using, as you mentioned earlier, food as a platform from which to to explore and and report. So it's a very you know very very rich and, and um, meaty books here. We're full of the puns today. <laughs> a very rich and meaty <laughs> book. So thank you for yeah. reading that. My pleasure. Um, so where can listeners find you online um i'm quite chatty on twitter i love twitter that's my social media of choice and i'm at eden travels i'm also on instagram under the same handle um, and i have a website www.carolineeden.com very good thank you so much and we're recording this in december 2020 so i wish you and your family have a very safe and happy holidays thank you jeremy and to you You can find the episode show notes and much more at TravelWritingWorld.com. Please remember to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. And if you find the show valuable, please consider leaving a review or supporting the show with only a few dollars a month at TravelWritingWorld.com support.